0: Hello, welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, assistant editor. I'm joined by Tim Wyatt, digital editor, Madeline Davies, deputy news editor, and Hattie Williams, news reporter. This week, Article Fifty was officially triggered. Tim Wyatt's been speaking to the Bishop of Gibraltar in Europe, Robert Innes. What's he said?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I called him on um, on Wednesday. Um, which was when, uh, as the diplomat was going to Brussels to hand over the official Article 50 letter and begin the kind of two-year process of, of Brexit. And um, he, was, uh, he said that the main concerns that he's been hearing from people in, in Anglican churches in the continent were, were around um, pensions and healthcare entitlements. So there's a lot of British expats who attend Anglican churches in Europe um, who maybe in some cases live there for some time and are really worried about whether they'll still have the same entitlement to get access to the local European healthcare services and how their pensions will work, he said. Some of them actually even felt trapped because they had sold their homes in Britain, moved to maybe to France where house prices were much lower, and now if they even if they wanted to go back into to the UK after Brexit, they wouldn't be at the the housing market is so different that selling their, for example, French home wouldn't even get them back onto the housing ladder in Britain. So they felt kind of they were kind of at all at sea really. And there's been some lobbying going on in recent months, hasn't there? That's right. Yeah. So diocese of in Europe, officials have been meeting up with some people, civil servants from the, from the government, um, and trying to press the case of these British expats, um, and also the other kind of concerns of of the churches and chaplaincies across the diocese. The other thing that they've been that the bishop in Europe uh, said he actually wrote a blog as well, published on Wednesday, which looked specifically at the question of Gibraltar, um, and said ninety six percent of its voters voted remain, which is the highest of any district or region in in the referendum. And yet they're going to be obviously like everyone else pulled out of the EU, despite being attached as it were by land to an EU member in Spain. Um, And he said they were gonna be some of the most vulnerable to the effects of Brexit, um, despite having to leave against their will because of so much of their industry and tourism relies on a really um, easy crossing between uh, Spain and, and Gibraltar.
0: Your story says, regardless of the outcome, the diocese will continue working with Christians on both sides of the channel, the bishop said. and He says, we've been here for 500 years, a lot longer than the EU. We are not about to pack up and go home. Does that indicate that, regardless of whether Britain's in the European Union or not, the church still has a
1: crucial role to play? Yeah, I think that's what the bishop would say, and um, he was kind of trying to emphasise that, the Church of England has had a foothold in Europe, as it were, for, as he said, 500 years, ever since the Reformation. And, um, and while uh, I think it's probably a fair summation to say that the majority of, of people in the Church in Europe would have preferred to, to stay in the EU, Britain leaving the continent, as it were, is not going to stop their close relationships with European churches or the kind of vital bridge role, I guess, they play between the Church in England and other denominations across the continent. Many bishops during the referendum were very outspoken in
0: favour of remaining. Um, How have they been reacting, Hattie, to the the dawning moment?
2: Well, we wrote a piece um, obviously when the vote came in, um, and obviously, like you said, they were. I wrote a piece before and after the vote came in, and of course, you know it's very difficult to um, be too openly remain when the vote was unknown. But after it came out, there was. Perhaps a lot of um, tentative disappointment, um, and some were more outspoken than others on, on blogs and so forth. So now that the vote's in, there's kind of an opinion that, well, it's what's done is done, and we've got to make the best of, of what's happened. And actually, although there's a lot of unknowns, you know, the core of our faith and, and what we do is not going to change. So um, trying to be positive in that sense, even though there are... You know, as I say, still a lot of unknowns, um, and as, as Tim was saying, in terms of what's going to happen um, uh, between, you know, faiths uh, and churches across Europe.
1: One other thing I just crossed my mind is that there's almost a similarity you could draw with uh, the predicament of the Labour Party in that, most of the Labour Party before the vote were kind of instinctively in favour of Remain. But a lot of um, MPs and politicians on that side have felt since the result, they've kind of tried to walk this tightrope between mm-hmm. not abandoning their previous position for Remain, but understanding that they need to be seen to accept the will of the people. And I wonder if bishops in a national church, they, a lot of them, I think their private inclination would be to, to Remain but there I think subsequently to the referendum they've been trying to ensure that they don't sound like sore losers and that actually recognising that significant number of people in the church and obviously in the country at large disagree with them and and that's the way the government is going and so they need to find some way of trying to get on board with that as it were.
2: I think there is a frustration as well that we didn't know necessarily what was going to happen so I think with you know, Theresa May was obviously originally Remain, um, and obviously as the Prime Minister going into a Brexit, then she's obviously had to be quite clear on her um, position. Um, but I think there is some frustration that we still don't really know uh, what the next stage is. You know, we've signed this letter has gone out. You know, it's, it, the ball is rolling, as it were. But um, what this will mean um, to people every day um, is, is is unclear.
1: Um, one other thing I think is is interesting is that. Obviously, the Article Fifty has kind of coincided, coincidentally or not, with the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome, which was um, the treaty which set up the European Union um, back in in 1957. And um, all of the heads of, of the 27 member states, minus Theresa May, were, were in Rome um, last week for a kind of ceremony. And actually, they had a, an audience with the Pope. And he, I, I did a story on what he was saying to them, and. Uh, it was it was very interesting. Actually, he was he was kind of quite blunt about the fact that the EU is facing um, problems, difficulties. Most obviously Brexit, but also the rising of populism and and anti EU and anti European politicians. And he was he has some quite strong words about how Europe needs to kind of return to the the vision of the founding fathers who, who signed the Treaty of Rome all those years ago, or it could indeed kind of wither and die. Um, so there's a real sense, I think. Even the Pope, who is, you know, quite openly pro-EU, I suppose, kind of says some, got some hard truths for Europe to, to, to swallow.
0: Speaking of the Pope, Hattie, he's made some noteworthy comments on intercommunion between Anglicans and Roman Catholics this week. Is that right? Mm,
2: well, that's right. I mean, it was actually um, a few weeks ago that he actually made the remarks, but some reactions have, could have sort of trickled through. Yeah, so in a question and answer session, um, he was referring to some Anglican missions in Argentina. Um, and he said uh, in, in this particular instance, and when people can't go on Sunday to the Catholic celebration, they go to the Anglican. And the Anglicans go to the Catholic because they don't want to spend their Sunday without a celebration and they work together. Now, for some people, that's quite significant. Um in terms of um, the relationship between Anglicans and and, and Roman Catholics. Um, And that's part of the mission of the Anglican Centre in Rome, is to um, bring that relationship closer together. So it's quite a positive thing um, for them. So, for example, the director of the Anglican Centre in Rome, Archbishop David Moxton, said that these remarks were groundbreaking. He said, Pope Francis has been teaching us to be less anxious over our differences and unresolved doctrinal issues. Um, but on the other hand, um, one of the co-chairs of IARCAM, which is uh, International Anglican Roman Catholic Commission for Unity and Mission, it's quite a mouthful, um, the co-chair of that, the Archbishop David uh, Bolan, uh, disagreed and he said it's it's not particularly, Pope isn't really saying anything new. Um, he said... I don't think Pope Francis was suggesting we draw universal principles from these contexts, but rather that their experience is genuine, positive, and faithful to the spirit in their particular locations. Um, And again, this was quite different to his co-chair, who's the suffragan bishop of in Europe, the Right Reverend David Hammond. And he said that uh, in many places in the developing worlds, our churches are already very deep and very close Mm -hmm. and and perhaps the Pope is suggesting that they are deeper and closer than than is experienced in Europe and there are some, uh, there's a learning curve there and, and some steps to be
0: taken. This will make Conservatives in the Catholic Church quite nervous, won't it?
1: Yes, I think that's probably right. There's already, um, we know, kind of tension between conservatives who are worried that Pope Francis might be about to relax rules on things like communion for people who've remarried after divorce and those kind of things. And I think there already is a sense of suspicion that perhaps he doesn't hold as tightly to the doctrine as previous popes have or as they would liked. And no doubt I think this will probably cause equal concerns for some conservatives, conservative Anglicans, particularly evangelical Anglicans, who would see any kind of rapprochement with Rome is tantamount to kind of heresy but I think what's fascinating about this for me is that he seems to be suggesting that ecumenism works much better on a local level when two parishes start working together and you know we've had decades and decades of these mouthful commissions international Anglican Roman Catholic Commission for unity and mission which haven't really achieved very much and actually here in the UK you can see ecumenical relations between denominations have got much further when individual parishes have decided to put aside their differences and work together rather than kind of top-level um, talks and negotiations.
2: I think that's true with between faiths as well. Um, it seems to work better on a, on a local level, um, whereas when you try and uh, sort out these issues between faiths, you know, things get a bit political and um, people get a bit nervous
0: about that. It's interesting to read our leader column this week which says, Ecumenism is never the main crop of church endeavour, instead it springs up in the margins like wild poppies. (laughs) Last week we talked about the story about the Bishop of Hlandaff and Geoffrey John. Um, Madeline, how's the story moved on since last week?
3: So since last week we know that five members of the Electoral College have made a complaint Um, about the process um, which has been taken up by a subcommittee of the church in Wales. Um, We don't yet know what impact if any that will have on the appointment process which is now passed to the bench of bishops.
0: And the bench of bishops wrote a quite strongly worded letter this week is that right to the church times?
3: Yes so we've got a letter from the bench um, very unhappy about our leader last week um, In our leader, we said that um, a huge injustice had been perpetrated against the Dean of St Albans, um, Dr Geoffrey John. Um, And they very much refuted the content of the leader. Um, They say that we've painted a caricature of the electoral system. Um, They completely reject the idea that there was a huge injustice. Um, They talk about how the system has generally worked very well in terms of appointing someone. Um, And they also give a lot of examples of the way in which they feel that the bishops and the Church in Wales um, has been very progressive on um, LGBT issues.
0: There's also a letter from the recently retired primate of Wales, Dr Barry Morgan. What's he said?
3: Um, So he has refuted the suggestion um, that he um, helped to block um, Geoffrey John's nominations in two previous occasions. It's quite difficult because technically the Electoral Colleges are supposed to be confidential so it's it's quite hard sometimes if you want to preserve that confidentiality to really give details about what happened. Um, But he has said that he's on the record as saying that he would have no problem consecrating somebody in a same-sex relationship, um, that he's always tried to be supportive of those people. Um, So he's very much trying to correct this suggestion um, that he's been involved in blocking Geoffrey John in the past.
0: I know he writes, normally I am accused of being too liberal rather than too too conservative on this issue.
3: Yeah, I think um, it's probably that he's sort of um, accustomed to receiving very different sort of criticism.
1: Do we have any idea how this is going down in the wider church in Wales? And like, what is this issue arising, passions elsewhere?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there are some sort of parallels to what happened um, in the Sea of Sheffield and that it spread beyond the church. Um, so in the same way that we had the um, Sheffield MP raising concerns about what would happen there um, we've had a question um, in the Welsh Assembly this week from an Assembly member um, who wanted to know whether this actually sort of contravened equality law. Mm. Um, she was told that the Church of Church in Wales isn't subject um, to um, those particular um, regulations but it, it does show that this is kind of gone beyond the church walls.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that something similar to the opt-out that the Church of England got in Legislation about um, women bishops as well? Yeah,
3: the employment practices are um, not subject to um, the Equality Act that was referred to by the Assembly Member.
0: We ran a feature recently by Ted Harrison about what to expect if you feel called to ordination. It's a slow, bizarre, intrusive process, he wrote, but also affirming and encouraging. Jemima Lewis has been on this daunting journey with her Darcyson Director of Ordinance, or DDO. I spoke to her. Jemima, how did you first come to sense a call to ordination? In this piece, you're quoted as saying that your aunt, uh, who's a pagan, was involved.
4: Yeah, she she was. I mean, she was an unlikely candidate for someone to um, encourage me in my sense of call, cool, but uh, she she was. And the way she did it was mostly by sending newspaper clippings in the post of, of female priests and articles about female priests um, uh, and I think she just had a strong sense of of my involvement in church and how uh, for her like that, that would be an obvious place for me to end up so she was um, a real thorn in my side if you like but also the uh, leadership in the church I gave me lots of opportunities to serve sort of leading home groups and um, giving your sermon, and you know, and they also took me on a day away for young women in leadership. That's St. Seminolitis. So I felt like there were lots of people around me, sort of pointing to it. But I think I was probably the last one to articulate it, um, to my vicar.
0: And what was it like when you first went to see your DDO? I mean, the piece. Someone says it requires some courage and patience to. Um... Well, the DDO says it requires some courage and patience to start the process. I and mean, did you did you find that? Yeah,
4: I mean, definitely, um, definitely, patience um, because it's a long, old process. So when you first go and see your DDO, you know that you have a, that's the first conversation, but then. They like you to have done a lot more discernment, so away days and retreats and um, my own diocese put on a reflective day. Uh, and then you probably meet with your DDO, I think I probably met with her over a year, several times before I actually made gave in my application. And even then, once you're in the process, I mean, I had two children in the process of being... Right. selected so like, that's how long it can and that's partly because I had my turn so, you know I took time out but um it probably took in in total over f- uh, five years or so um so I think you have to be in with the long for the long haul does oh,
0: so that ever get frustrating at times how long it can seem to take, um
4: I think for experience. me I think for me it was um actually welcome because I I was actually I have a busy life with my young children but also my work at the church times and then Journalism, uh, and it was very much you know slowly, slowly intensive for me. So I, I I felt like that time to really understand that sense of call and vocation was important to me. Um, I think I remember saying at my my BAP, um, and they wrote down and reflected a lot on it a lot with me. This idea that um, it's actually quite inconvenient <laughs> for me to feel mm-hmm. this sense of call that actually mm-hmm. have a busy life that's both challenging already and fulfilling and I feel like um, in many ways it would be easier if I didn't feel this sense of um, call to ministry um, and so in that sense it was useful to kind of uh, get my ducks in a row if you like at home and, and with work and, and in, in my own mind and sense a sense of mm. what I wanted to do with my future that it took a while.
0: So you go through this quite lengthy process and you finally get put forward for a, a bishop's advisory panel yeah. or BAP. yeah. Um, is that pretty intense and scary? What what's involved?
4: Yeah, I really enjoyed mine actually. I think because I didn't. For me, it really wasn't about a make or a break. This is kind of this is the beginning of my life and all you know all that I've ever wanted to do. Because like I said, I've always had this thing of it being, um, bit inconvenient. Um, but I I just relished the opportunity. Well, a some sleep away from my children, <laughs> but also uh, the fact that I could talk at length about and, and talk with people at length about I don't know my sense of vocation about some of the breeding that I'd done you know all the interviews were really erudite thoughtful people and they gave you it's a bit like being in therapy you know they gave you loads of time to express yourself and if you could just if you can throw yourself into the process and just enjoy it uh, and there was a whole community there in the um, house we were staying together and they were lovely people uh, and you know, we had to give a presentation, and everybody was really supportive. There is no sense of competition because they're not in competition with each other, you know, there isn't a kind of quota that you can take forward from that back. You know, you're all judged on your own merit, and everybody there was a really supportive atmosphere. So I found it really, really enjoyable and stimulating. But I can see how it is also quite scary, you know, that actually you're away for sort two days or three days and you're constantly under scrutiny. So even when you're at meals. You, you know, you rotate chairs so that you're all, always sitting next to a different, um, what are they called, like the the assessor, assessor yeah. and uh, and you're always sitting next to a different assessor, and, uh, you know, and they always, you know, every time, in every conversation, you're kind of being scrutinised, I think. Mm. Um, and then there were three long interviews.
0: And then what happens next? You're going to go and train in September?
4: Yes, yeah. yes, so I have actually deferred for the last two years because of this... Um, you know, my juggling family and work um, at the church times, but um, I am going to be going and starting the new Winchester Pathway, which starts in September, so me and a few others will be one of the, f- the first cohort of um, ordinands through that new course, which has just got approval as a you know a course to ordain candidates through the Durham um common awards um and so yeah it's really exciting just down the road from my house so it's it's all very convenient
0: so you don't have to move away no no
4: i'm not going i'm not moving away to college we looked at the option but um uh, at the moment the church have been really good about helping me to work out this sense of having different vocations so like i'm cool i feel very cool to um the church but also to journalism and writing Um, but also to my own family and my relationships. And so actually the church have been good. Um, I mean, you know, it's a work in progress, but they've understood and are trying to work with me to carve out and create something that um, is going to work and really honours that sense of, you know, taking that very seriously, but also having other important strings to my bow. So, yeah.
0: And that's nearly all for this week's episode. Before we go, thought we'd share some of our favourite quotes from this week's paper. Hattie.
2: Uh, well, I think uh, this one wins it for me from uh, Andrew Brown's press column. He concludes Meanwhile, the Salt Lake City Tribune reports that Mormon missionaries are hampered in their work in Brazil by the faith's prohibition of coffee drinking and other case for radical inclusiveness.
0: <laughs> Tim, did anything stand out for you from this week's paper?
1: Yeah, I somewhat geekily really enjoyed this uh, long feature about uh, 50 years ago, there was a, a big conference in Kiel about evangelical Anglicans, um, which was kind of a sea change in how they approached the rest of the Church of England.
0: Andrew Atherton wrote that. That's,
1: r- That's right, yeah. Um, I'm going to be cheeky and have two quotes, actually. Okay. Uh, there's one in Andrew Atherton's feature where he, um, he quotes one of the observers of this um, congr- of this Congress, Michael Harper, who said, The Congress is very much like a coming out party and a breathless one at that. Evangelical Anglicans, like coy, self-conscious debutantes, were launching themselves into the orbit of ecclesiastical society. There's also a really interesting sidebar to this feature where Margaret Duggan, as a a long-time Church Times correspondent, um, talks about when she uh, covered it as a reporter in, uh, in 1967. And she concludes, it was probably the only conference I ever attended where members were concerned for my soul and didn't just see me as a vehicle for possibly getting their pet views into the Church Times. Very good.
0: My favourite quote came from Gillian Craig's television column this week. Um, He was reviewing Unreported World, Putin's Family Values on Channel 4 and he spoke about Father Ioann Osiak, an Orthodox priest who, with his wife, proudly holds the Order for Parental Glory in state recognition for their producing 18 children. There's a very nice picture of them all in the paper. And that's all for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, comment, features, book reviews and more at www.churchtimes.co.uk. And you can find our subscription offers at www.churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. The music is by Sought After Sounds. Do tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thanks for listening.